HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Wine Access. Here's a great way to discover and drink the best wines expertly curated for you. Go to wineaccess.com slash HRN for more info. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. So on this episode of Soul by Todd Richards, I'm uh, really pleased to have, uh, I call him a youngin uh, because he's definitely younger than me. He's uh, my son's age, which uh, tells you uh, that I must have a, 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 a either a very old kid or I started very early. Uh, but his name is Lawrence Weeks. And he's uh, out of Louisville, Kentucky. He's working right now at a Honeywood, uh, a Quita Mitchell restaurant. Everyone doesn't know Quita Mitchell. I mean, she's probably one of the most well-known chefs in the country. Uh, she's really famous for her Holly Hill Inn. And now Lawrence is an executive chef of Honeywood uh, Restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky, not too far from Louisville. Um, and I said Louisville, ladies and gentlemen, it's not Louisville, it's not Louisville, it's Louisville. Is that right, Lawrence? I just want to make sure we're saying it right here. That's right. Lawrence Weeks uh, to Soul by Todd Richards. Hey, thank you for having me on here, Chef Todd. Uh, it was my pleasure. So we go, we do go uh, way back. Uh, when I was in Louisville, my uh, oldest son, Junior, uh, was, uh, you guys went to Trinity, Trinity High School together for a little while. Yeah. And then your dad is a uh, OBGYN. Am I remember that correctly? That's right. Because um, he delivered my uh, youngest son, uh, Tedrick Simon August Richards, 
Uh, Tedrick has all these names because he was a preemie and we didn't know what to name him. So he got all those names. So <laughs> I, I would consider Lawrence, you know, probably more uh, more family than 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 chef uh, at some points. And he did work with me at the Pig and the Pro and opened the Pig and the Pro here in Atlanta. But now he's gone on to uh, really start and furnish, uh, furnish his own career uh, here in, well, now in Lexington, as Louisville as well. But Lawrence, uh, why don't you tell everyone what made you get into uh, cooking or into the restaurant profession? Man, so I always had an interest in cooking. Um, since I was a youngin, I was always bothering my grandma in the kitchen. And, you know, they don't they don't really take to that too well. So <clears throat> my grandma would would sit me in front of the TV and she would put on Great Chefs, Great Cities. Um, I think it was a, a PBS show. Yeah, PBS. So I, I started watching that as a kid. Um, instead of cartoons, I was watching cooking shows, Yan Can Cook, uh, Alton Brown, people like that. So as I grew older, um, cooking just made sense as a career for me. Uh, how much cast iron did your grandmother have? I always ask, kind of ask that question when, uh, when people are talking about the grandmother's cooking. I know mine have plenty of cast iron. If you look at my oven right now, it's probably 12 cast iron pans. How much cast iron did your grandmother have in her kitchen? <laughs> I think my grandma, I don't know if she had all too much, mm -hmm. um, but I know she had a couple of pans that were old faithful. Oh, wow. She, she had the big, the big chicken fryer pan. She had a cornbread pan. And those are the only ones I really remember. I, I try to tell people that cast iron is the original uh, non-stick pan. Um, you don't need to have a non-stick pan if you have a good cast iron pan and you take take care of it. And I think our grandmothers are the ones who sh uh, showed us how to do that um, at first. So what, what was your first job in, in, in the restaurant industry? Um, so, man, starting off 15, 16, 17, I was working fast food and quick service, stuff like that. And then... Um, once I graduated high school, I went to work at a country club in Louisville, mm -hmm. Polo Fields Country Club. And um, I went through one semester of college, wasn't really feeling the computer science um, career path. So I, uh, I took the tuition money that my parents gave me right. and um, I signed up for all culinary classes. Yeah, you know, I gave you some of that tuition money too, because your dad's not a cheap doctor. So I want to let you know that, <laughs> I, that I contributed to that as well. But uh, you know, let's talk about the fast food though, and that's one reason why I really wanted to have you on 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 Soul. Is that most people uh, when I talk to chefs, they uh, don't really talk about their fast food careers. But I believe that a young person, you know, starting out 15, 16, 17, that it, it can be a culinary education of its own. You know, things are already, you know, either pre-portioned, pre-measured, but you still have to use those applied cooking sciences. Uh, how was it when you first walked into a kitchen, you know, at that age? Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm young and dumb. I'm a kid. I really don't know all too much. So um, I was lucky enough to have my brother actually train me at the fast food restaurant that I was working at. Mm -hmm. Um but working in a kitchen like that, it's it's more so mise en place than execution because those are the types of places that have systems that have been tried and true and they work perfectly if you just um, you're just prepared for it. So you're saying that the system based, um, you know, 
part of your career actually started more so in fast food than maybe working in a higher end in restaurant. Um, what kind of covers were you all doing then? I mean, you know, fast food is supposed to be fast paced, but I don't think people understand what kind of covers can be done or and covers for anyone who is not familiar with uh, restaurant lingo is number of patrons that were served. Uh, how many, you know, did you all do on an average, average weekend or average Saturday? Man, I couldn't even tell you. Um, it was probably a couple hundred people every hour or so. Wow. So, I mean, that fast-paced environment uh, really, you know, helps shapes, you know, your career. I mean, you have to move. And then you said mise en place. Uh, most people may not understand what mise en place is. It's just a fancy French word for prep work. But you think about places, you know, like uh, Subway, in a sense that you have to cut all the tomatoes and lettuce and all that stuff. Were you doing any of that kind of uh, work uh, in your fast food uh, career? Yeah, um, a big part of it. So I worked at Sonic. So okay. a big part of it was um, hand breading all those onion rings. Mm. And, you know, everybody when they go to Sonic orders onion rings. So, well, I mean, did they even say that they hand bread them? I, I had no idea that they hand bread their, uh, their onion rings. That, that's, that's a fascinating thing. I never, I never knew that. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't think it's something they really, um, they really speak up for, but they should. Because all those hundreds of pounds of onions, I was breading every day. Uh, we we we're gonna have to give them a shout. Get them with my marketing team, and uh, maybe, <laughs> you know maybe we can we can convince them for that. Okay, so you were you were in fast food, um, and then you were into college, and uh, you were a year in college. And where did you work after that? Um, I worked at a restaurant in town called Relish, mm -hmm. um, which is owned by a restaurateur here in Kentucky named Susan Seiler. Mm -hmm. um, she was. She's most known for the success of Jack Fry's in Louisville. Um, she, no, she no longer owns it, but she's just a fantastic restaurateur and such a um, hospitable host as far as ownership and um, having her guests. How, how old were you then? About what? Around 21, 22 at, the, at that point in time? Uh, yeah, I think it was, I was 20 until I was about 22. And, and what was the, the, you know, some of the fundamental differences in leaving, you know, this fast food, um, you know, career and going to a traditional uh, restaurant uh, career owned by a small uh, business owner, not a huge franchise? Well, it definitely felt like a more family environment. Um, you know, I knew the owner by name. I saw her every day. Um, as far as work goes, nobody, it's a scratch kitchen. Nothing mm -hmm. comes in a can or bagged up, frozen, or anything like that, pre-portioned, pre-cut. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess you're using just a different skill set to make sure that you get through the day. And what, uh, what station did you start when you uh, first started working there? I started off on Garmerger. So you did, what, salads, uh, desserts? It's probably more of a, a was it a true Garmerger station, you know, such in, is in French kitchens, or is it more like the pantry station in which you did every single thing that was probably cold and maybe dropped a couple fried items uh, on the side? Yeah, everything that we were doing was cold. Um, we didn't have a true Garmerger kitchen. We weren't doing terrines or pâtés or anything like that. But, um, yeah, all the, all the soups, salads, and sandwiches were coming off my station. And then we had a couple of hot apps that I was tossing in the oven. 
Oh, wow. So yeah, how to have soon. And, and for, you know, listeners, you know, Garmage Station is really uh, something you find more in hotels uh, per se or country clubs like Lawrence worked at and where they handle, you know, the bulk of the cold foods, more like pates, terrines, things like that. Or if you see in a hotel buffet and all the cold food that's on the buffet, it will come from, from that area in the kitchen. And I always ask that, you know, where did people get started at in, in restaurants? Because I believe that really kind of shapes how they cook. When I look at your food, I definitely have a better understanding now. That's probably where you started uh, working. And then how many stations did you work while you were there? Uh, I worked a whole line when I was there. So the, I think I was there about two years. Started off on Garmo. Um, got moved up to Garmo during nighttime service. Mm-hmm. And then uh, rolled through grill and saute. Uh, so, yeah, I basically got trained on every station. Do you think there was a fundamental difference between, you know, working garmage pantry station uh, for lunch than it was to dinner in that transition? Oh, absolutely. It's an organizational difference. Um, during lunch service, everybody wants to get in and get out really quickly. So mm-hmm. it's super fast paced. Um, it's simple preparations and it's all assembly, basically. But um, dinner station, it's all about maybe getting a little bit more intricate mise en place together. So um, making sure all your portions are together, making sure you're ready for the dinner rush instead of just kind of pushing food out quickly. Absolutely. So you worked, um, you know, you went from uh, garmage pantry to the grill, and you know, so you left really basically cold food and went to hot food. How was that transition, especially on the grill? I'm sure you probably had, you know, some meat temperatures that you had to learn. Uh, tell us about that process and learning uh, meat temperatures. Uh, so I had a little bit of experience at the country club doing temperatures. Uh, we had banquets and stuff, so we would have to temp out steaks, stuff like that. But working in a small restaurant like that, um, there's a little bit less room for air. Mm-hmm. Um, when people are paying that high price for for a plate, they're not going to let that, you know, medium steak slide for a mid rare or any anything like that. So you have to be a little bit more precise when you're cooking at a place like that. I, I don't think people really understand um, the volume when it comes to that. So say you got you know ten steaks in on the board and they're all different temperatures. Uh, everyone at the table thinks that everyone eats the meat the same, but they truly don't in a restaurant. And what was the process, though? What was the process of of deciding how to cook, when to cook items that you learned uh, working in that kitchen? Um, it's It all has to do with organi- organization, like I said. Um, everybody's a little bit different, but somebody can teach you their system on which part of the grill to put mid-rare steaks, what part to put medium, what part to put mid-well. Um, et cetera. But um, you just kind of have to figure out your flow and figure out how you organize things in the kitchen. Hmm. And do you think any of those skills translated from your time at fast food, you know, just pushing that pace of, of a super controlled environment, very organized, that any of those skill sets uh, translate over to a, uh, a kitchen, especially working the grill? I wouldn't say at the time, no, because um, Maybe I wasn't smart enough to to kind of find the parallels <laughs> right. from fast food to to a scratch kitchen, but I mm-hmm. definitely should have thought back and used some of those same skills. Wow. So let's 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 move on from from there, and where and where'd you venture on to next? Um. So I worked at uh, Relish. Ended up closing, so 
I worked at a Mexican restaurant here in, well, in Louisville for a bit until I graduated culinary school. And then um, the day I graduated culinary school, I was out celebrating and I called up the pig and the pearl. I asked if Chef Todd was there. Yeah. Uh, the hostess gave you the phone and I just kind of said, what's going on? What y'all doing down there? He said, man, I'm opening up this new restaurant. If you want to come down, come down. And which culinary school did you go to? I, I don't I don't recall. It was Jefferson Community. Oh, yeah, Technical Jefferson. College. Yeah, Jefferson. Yeah, I, I, forget, I forget about that, that college. I remember doing a couple of demos uh, there. Uh, I think I broke all the rules that the teachers were trying to uh, instill, <laughs> <laughs> instill in the cooks. And I don't think I was ever invited, invited back from that. But that's not, <laughs> that's, not, that's not surprising. You know, and the Big and the Pro was a you know, great restaurant. It's still open. Uh, my former partners, uh, Todd and Cindy Sher, still, still run and operate the place in Atlantic Station. And it's really... Uh, you know, people, I don't think people understood how technical barbecue was. You know, did you find that same uh, in coming into that kitchen? I absolutely did not. Um, I thought it was going to be a, a pretty easy learning curve to do, um, you know, temping out steaks and um, doing stuff like that and then going to barbecue. But barbecue is so, it has to be so precise. And the fact of the matter is it's cooked beforehand. So the the margin for air between overcooked is so small mm-hmm. that you know everybody thinks you want fall off the uh, fall off the bone ribs, but I know Chef Todd taught me that if you you don't want the rib to go that far, you want it to still be uh, still have a bite to it. So I know a couple of times I sent out <laughs> I sent out some ribs that were fall off the bone and they came right back. Yeah. Yeah, they fell right off the bone into the damn trash can, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, well, we didn't do that. You know, someone ate them, but still, you know, because, you know, I hate it. You know, what, what was worse for me was uh, overcooked ribs was wasting food, you know, so someone had to eat them. You know, we just didn't throw stuff away. But, you know, the technical point um, and the reason why I want to go through this chronological order of uh, the succession with you, because when I look at what you're doing now, it seems like you picked up a lot of those things on the way. And these technical points, I don't know. I don't think that historically people think that barbecue is really that technical of a food. Would you would you agree with that? I agree. People think you just throw a piece of meat in a, in a barrel smoker and just let it go until, you know, it's cooked through. But it's it's a lot that goes into it. Temperature control. Um, knowing what you're looking for as far as the bark goes, uh, properly seasoning, because you can't season every piece of barbecue the same. You can't season ribs the same way you season brisket mm-hmm. or chicken or turkey. So it, it's a lot that goes into it that people don't, I guess, see unless they're in that space. You know, I mean, we brine, well, we brined all our chicken, turkey, duck, um, and and most people didn't think we knew that we did duck but you know <laughs> we did that as well um but it was really what was great to watch you know a lot of uh cooks like you really figure it out you know understanding that brisket had you know there's four different ways you have to cut the brisket you can't just cut it all straight down you know where to make the turns and we did it in a unique way i don't think anyone still to this day does barbecue you know the way that we did at the pig and the pearl nor at my new place lake and oak i think it's really just a a, a different way of of doing so and i believe that you know having a background in upscale and fine dining uh, really shapes that. We're going to take a break right quick, Lawrence. Uh, we're going to come right back. You're listening to Soul by Todd Richards.
Hi, this is Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation. You may know my show is all about enlightening, inspiring, and motivating you guys to try and drink more wine. I want to tell you about a great way to discover and drink the best wine, Wine Access. Whether you're a neophyte or an expert, Wine Access makes it easy for everyone to learn about and buy the wines you like. Their team tastes over 20,000 selections per year and only curates the finest wines, exceeding expectations and over-delivering on price. Through the years, Wine Access has cultivated relationships with under-the-radar winemakers, as well as the most iconic producers. Think Opus One, Dana, Larkmead, Silver Oak, just to name a few. Discover your new favorite bottle with Wine Access. I always tell you to rely on the experts, whether it be retailers, psalms, or winemakers. Wine Access has all the knowledge, connections, and stories to point you to the best wines based on your taste. Wine Access also has a great wine club. Let them do all the work so you can discover your new favorite bottles. Go to wineaccess.com slash HRN. That's wineaccess.com slash HRN. Check them out now. We're back with uh, Soul by Todd Richards, and I'm here with Chef Lawrence Weeks uh, out of Lexington, Kentucky. He's formerly from Louisville and formerly one of uh, my great employees, and I'm glad to have him on because he's part of that younger generation of chefs coming up. And, I, you know, we talked about, you know, the past of his career and where he's gotten started from, but I really want uh, to get his insights on really what is the future of food uh, from his standpoint and that, that next generation of chefs coming up. Lawrence, I mean, really, where do you see food going right now? You know, we're in a COVID environment. Uh, we've all pivoted our restaurants to certain different directions. Where do you think that food is really going to go? So I see food going more, um, I, I guess the, the progression of food went from um, food being uh, like classically French to like a futuristic approach to food when molecular gastronomy was really big. But I think I see it kind of going back in history, mm -hmm. and we're going to look at the cultural uh, parallels that happen in food. So explain that. What do you mean by cultural parallels? So there's there's a whole lot of points in history where um, there's either ingredients or dishes that seem to mash up and make something new that's traditional. Mm -hmm. um, something that I always say is culture isn't a stagnant thing. It always moves, and it always morphs to its environment around it. So mm -hmm. the easiest thing that I could point out to you is um, like your collard green ramen. Um, that's something that people see as like a, a fusion dish. Mm -hmm. But in your household, it was something that was traditional. You know, that's something Absolutely. that you ate all the time. Do you think that um, do you think that that cultural that if that we continue down that path, will we lose cultural identity in food or will we gain more cultural identity in food? I think that we're definitely going to gain cultural identity in food. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would challenge people to just learn a little bit of history about how some of these dishes and ingredients came to be. And people like you, people like uh, Sean Brock, BJ Dennis, uh, Michael Twitty, all those people are starting to bring out the history of of some of these ingredients, especially southern uh, in southern cuisine, and we can kind of we can kind of connect the dots and see the parallels that I'm talking about throughout food. Uh, you know, I always tell people that fried chicken is, is uh, one of the most universal foods in in the world. Every culture has one. 
Uh, it's just that in America, we get labeled as the gatekeepers uh, of it. But traditionally, you know, it's the way that we use spices. But again, you can find fried chicken in every culture. You know, you, you think when people say KFC, are they talking about the kernel or are they talking about Korean fried chicken right now? You just don't you just don't know what the reference point is to your point of the cultural um, environment that we in. But let's specifically talk about, you know, the African ways of cooking and how they spread to the states, you know, either through slavery or, or through uh, appropriation. Uh, where do you see the African influence uh, in, in the realm of cultural food that you're speaking of? I think the African influence is all around Southern cuisine. It is Southern cuisine. So um, dishes like perlu and uh, red rice um, aren't something that's mainstream yet. But mm-hmm. if we look at something like jambalaya, which is down in uh, Louisiana, everybody knows about jambalaya. All right. But there's a connection between those and um, kind of figuring out where they come from, how they got to be the way that they are, is is going to make it easier for people to understand that there is uh, mother dishes that make the ones that we recognize today. And speaking of those, you know, those those mother dishes um, out of out of the the West Coast, you know, you look at things um, like Thanksgiving dinner and the double starch on Thanksgiving dinner, which you will find in, you know, West African cookery a a lot. Um, And, you know, look at Popeye's, you know, we were talking about fast food earlier today. And, you know, I don't think most people outside of the South would know anything about red beans and rice until you, you know, you see Popeye's all across the country. Do you believe it's the role of chefs uh, outside of just working in their restaurants or opening more restaurants is there a role of the chef to uh teach the public about the cultural identity of the food in which they came from absolutely i think that that's a well for me it's a very important role to play as a chef Uh, it's one of the reasons why i got into the industry is because i think as a chef you have to be a jack of all trades Mm -hmm. and um you have to wear a lot of hats you have to know about history culture uh seasonality um you have to know about food ways and stuff like that. So I think it is our role um, to educate the public. But finding the time while running a restaurant is also very hard. Uh, uh, believe me, I am. Uh, I get a gold star on on very hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, people, people say, you know, how do you do it all? I said sleep is a, a overrated experience. Um, and as soon as the government, <laughs> as soon as the government allows for uh, cloning, I will be the first one to sign up for it. You know, so I, I definitely agree with with that. But I want to I want to ask it even more in in depth. The the, the question is, is that what is the role of black chefs um, in in this cultural uh, renaissance that's happening? And really speaking about your generation. Uh, what does my generation need to do more to tell you all about, you know, our parents' generation? Um, I think that there are some some great leaders and teachers out here that are kind of laying the groundwork for black chefs. Um, I'm not I'm not sure what more you could do other than um, just kind of keep doing what you all are doing, and you all are you all are opening the door for us <clears throat> young young chefs to kind of let our voices be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, without you all working so hard and getting the recognitions that you were doing in times where we didn't have the same opportunities, there are people like Ashley Shanti, myself, uh, the younger generation that can kind of uh, 
carry the torch of black chess. Where do you where do you think um and and my other question is really more about gender specific uh because you working with Quida, you know who's a one of the most respected chefs in not only in the country uh not only in the state of Kentucky but around the world. Uh, where do you see us continually to to assist in the role of making the playing field equal, especially in the pay realm uh, for women chefs and especially women chefs of color that want to come into this business? I think that there's a change that is happening currently. Um, the macho kitchens that used to be too prevalent back in the days are starting to, you know, die out. I know there's still a couple of them, but um, the way in which we work has to change. So uh, having respect for people and just treating people like human beings, not throwing pans and cussing people out and, um, mm -hmm. you know, paying people differently because of either the color of their skin or their gender. That's just kind of being X'd out because it's just foul play nowadays. But, but do you, but do you, but what do you think has uh, changed the tide in that? I mean, it's not only because, you know, social media, of course, you can expose people on social media very easily. You can do those things. But really, what is it about the food that uh, we're trying to produce has changed that tide as well? So, the man, um, I could get pretty deep into this. but Well, that's I why you're that's... on the show, because we want you to get pretty deep. So. <laughs> I think that uh, getting back to our roots and, and um, getting back to traditional and, and cultural food really leads us back to uh, women because women were the leaders of the kitchen back in the day. Mm -hmm. So um, instead of cooking at people and doing these uh, new futuristic things, we're kind of getting back to a lighthearted, uh, more loving style of cooking, which I think suits um, uh, women in the kitchen. Do you, do you, um, because you know, and you've worked with me, the worst thing you can do uh, in my kitchen is have uh, one person sitting on a pantry station for six months, you know, and a lot of kitchens, you know, women get relegated to that and it, and it drives me absolutely crazy. I mean, it drives me bonkers um, knowing the way that my grandmother cooked, uh, both my grandmothers cooked and the way my mom cooked and my dad cooked. You know, there was no, uh, we had different roles in the kitchen, but there was never a, uh, you know, one was overshadowing the other. Uh, do you believe that uh, maybe the product is better in this environment than before, or, or, or do we believe that the, you know, the former Gordon Ramsay kind of approach that we've seen on on you know Hell's Kitchen is the way to go? That definitely is not the way to go. Um, having a loving um, demeanor when you're cooking. I mean, it's just going to make the whole environment better. If you're if you're a happy cook, you're going to make happy food and loving food for people. Mm. So, um, like I like I said before, we used to call it cooking at people. So these big heavy dishes that don't really have any soul or love into it. Um, I don't believe that that cuisine is going to be something that's carried on. But you know, dishes that are warming to the heart, loving, uh, nostalgic in their nature, those are going to be the things that people carry on. Do you believe that that culturally um, in this environment of COVID that we're in and, and the way that we've all had to make pivots, that uh, that food leadership uh, has a 
bigger responsibility uh, to keep restaurants open than ever before, because you can see as restaurants have closed, you know, there's a lot of people in our industry out of out of work. Uh, what is the role uh, that you've been playing in helping in the industry, not only to keep the place that, you know, that you're overseeing uh, open, but assisting others in, in doing so? So during COVID, um, you know, it was a rough, a rough time for everybody and uh, it was very uncertain. So I've just kind of been coached by WIDA to, um, to, to keep an approach that everything is going to be okay. If we keep the hospitality and the love into our food, we're going to have the customers coming back. This is all groundwork that we were laying before we knew this was going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. So if if you have that hospitality and love in your food, you're going to have a customer base that wants to keep you open. So we were lucky enough to stay open um, and we haven't lost any restaurants. So, I mean, that's that's so great to hear, especially in a smaller you know environment like Lexington and, and, and Louisville. But, you know, but there's something to be said about being in a smaller environment. And to your point of, of treating people and cooking with love, it seems like like you said, those places that continue to, to do so have been uh, still thriving as well as gaining new customers uh, than, than ever before. And I have to put, uh, pull up the menu here at, at Honeywood, and rarely do I even talk about a chef's menu. Uh, but uh, the reason why I'm, I'm asking this in the sense of what's on the menu is that you guys were doing uh, you know, family meals to go. And uh, in this environment of COVID, you know, a lot of people don't want to go into the dining uh, realm. Uh, how much to-go food are you actually producing in the restaurant right now? Man, uh, <laughs> the to-go food puts us <laughs> right? in weeds because... Uh, <laughs> cause you know, during the week, people don't want to, they don't want to come home from work or be on zoom all day and then get up and, um, mm-hmm. have to cook. So we do a lot of to go smoke pork chops. Uh, we have something on the menu called a beet loaf. That's super comforting. You said beet loaf, um, like B E E T. Yeah. It's, uh, basically a, a vegetarian vegan, uh, meatloaf. So, 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 are you just going to gloss over that? Are you going to tell us more in depth? Like, how did you come up? How did you come up with this meatloaf, uh, especially in this, uh, you know, this vegan economy that that is happening so prevalently in our country right now? How did you come up with this meatloaf? So, the meatloaf wasn't something that I came up with personally. It was on the mm-hmm. menu before I got there, but it contained. Um, it was just only vegetarian. It contained eggs and cheese and some other binders to keep it together. But um, when we closed for COVID. We were kind of sitting there and trying to figure out how we were going to tweak the menu and make it more friendly mm-hmm. for the guests and uh, changing the beet loaf to be vegan. Um, I mean, it took us months of research and mm-hmm. and air, but we finally got it down and people love it more than ever. Well, and what kind of rice are you using? I, I'm, I'm more curious now than, than ever before. What kind of rice are you, are you using in this beet loaf dish? We're using brown rice in it. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's already healthy. I mean, beets are, are super great. And it's on your um, family meal menu as well that pe- people are picking up to take to go. Uh, so you have a vegan option as well as the fried chicken option. I mean, I'm not sure what else people want, but um, <laughs> that sounds pretty, you know, pretty, yeah. pretty good to me. Uh, we got a couple more minutes uh, uh, left here. And I just uh, want to further the conversation about, you know, the generation that that you're in and what's next, you know, for that next generation, how, uh, 
you know, how are the rest of the people in your group, age group, doing in this time of COVID? And how has social media, more importantly, uh, been a thriving uh, way of communication from chef to chef and your peers? Social media is like one of the most important tools that I think somebody can utilize as a young chef nowadays. Um, just connecting with people and people being so accessible, um, it's... I think it's invaluable nowadays because without social media, I wouldn't have hooked up with somebody like Ashley Shanti mm -hmm. or BJ Dennis. Um, I can have conversations with them and we can talk about black food and what's going on and um, what our futures look like. But without something like social media, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that unless I go personally see the person you know i always say that your generation has you know way more advantages than than i did you know though i i watched some of the same cooking shows uh that you did you know with youtube and those things like that there's a lot of ways to get um to get more information about cooking compared to me being a nerd and uh and all these books uh that surround me uh, you can take away uh, a lot of things when you take away my books we might we might have a fight on, on, on your hands, but, you know, uh, but with social media also, uh, how, how are you utilizing it to show your wares, you know, to show the food that you're doing? So we can use social media as if we're, our, we are our mm -hmm. own publicist. Um, you could post pictures of food. You could post, um, conversation topics and have people chime in and you can just kind of people let people know what you're about before, uh, you all meet in person. A lot of the time, in times before this, you had to hire a PR group and uh, either release a book or um, be on a national level to let people know kind of what you're mm -hmm. preaching about. And, and what do you what do you see in your future? Are you going to own your own place? Um, you're going to still be working for one of the greatest chefs in the world. What do, what do you see the future of, of your food looking like? So. Um, for me, there's a there's a part in Lexington. My grand my grandmother grew up here. My father was born in Lexington, and uh, through them, I've learned a lot of the history in Lexington. There's a di there's a district here called Cheapside, uh, which used to be one of the biggest slave trading outposts in America. And um, for me, I would like to own a black owned restaurant in Cheapside. Well, I mean, that's really going back to some. I mean, could you imagine if that street can talk and you open a restaurant on that street? I mean, wow. Yeah. It's so many stories and history that's going on there. And I just kind of want to be part of that history, carry it on, not let it get lost. Do you think that if you were to do that, where would the fans come from? Because, you know, there's a... a section of our country that is really supportive of what we're talking about here, you know, on Soul, you know, this podcast is really featuring a lot of black chefs, uh, where there's a segment of the population that can really care less to hear anything that we're talking about. I say the best way, you know, to kill people with kindness is to make delicious food. But what do you think about opening up in an area, you know, with that type of history and you telling that story over again uh, to a new generation of people in Lexington? Well, I think people like Mashama Bailey kind of laid the groundwork for me. They're, they're putting down the blueprint on how to do it. Um, so this section of, of Lexington is not too far from the, the black neighborhood. Um, so I think getting people out to the, from the community back to uh, a place that has a history of such uh, pain 
we can kind of restore it and and make it our own again, but in a positive way. I, I believe there's you know some semantics that people will use. Um, uh, if, if, if someone uh, not of color did it, it would be gentrification. Uh, I believe for us, when we do it, it's uh, investing in our own community. And it's something that we all as chefs should, should do and be able to spread the gospel of delicious food throughout the world. Where can uh, everyone find you on social media? So you can find me at Weeks and a Days on every social media platform. That's W-E-E. K S correct. I just want to make sure people are not are going to spell it weak like uh, your food makes them weak in the knees. You know, I want to make sure that that they understand that's uh, weeks like uh, the long weeks of COVID, not uh, weeks like uh, passing out on the floor from delicious food. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Lawrence, I, I really appreciate you spending some time with me. I, I know your schedule, like mine, has been you know pretty hectic. Uh, please give Quita and everyone in Lexington. Um, my, my sincere best from my family to theirs. And then also give your family my best too. I haven't, I haven't talked to them in a long while and, and Junior is still up there with two kids. So I'm going to get to Louisville pretty soon and maybe I'll just take a ride over to come see you all over there. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on here and I appreciate everything you're doing for the food community. You're listening to Soul by Todd Richards. Soul by Todd Richards is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of Food World's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.